Thanks, guys. Morning, everybody. Great to see you. Just a little bit of fun there. He's in throat. He is, he is. Line was good, length not so much. Um, well, we will kick off uh, Hebrews in, in a minute, but um, just to say, a couple of weeks ago, my wife Emma and I um, had the privilege of, of being at our Grace Connection Church in, in Manchester, Revelation Church, which uh, many of you will remember uh, Duncan and Hannah um, planting that out from this place um, about 18 months ago, and many stood with them, prayed for them, and uh, just to, to report to you that it is going really well. The church is in a great place. Um, they've outgrown Duncan and Hannah's uh, home. So they're meeting in a, a venue strategically right at the heart of student land now, gathering uh, 30 or so adults, a whole bunch of kids. Uh, it's just in a great place. It's a joy to be there, to see the, the DNA that God's put into us here um, replicated there. And uh, they're seeing people coming to know Jesus. They're making an impact on the, um, the, the communities around them. And um, yeah, all, all with your prayers and your um, support. So um, I'm sure they would say thank you so much um, for that. Um, we're in the book of Hebrews. If you're new to the Bible, that's um, in the New Testament. It was originally a, a preach that was preached um, to some Christians in the early church. And um, we've seen in, in chapter one how uh, Jesus is better than angels and our spirituality. And in chapter two, how he was made like us uh, in every way, how he experiences the, the things that uh, we experience and, and then has made a way for us to come into um, the kingdom of God. And then last week at the start of chapter three, we saw how Jesus was better than Moses and our, our life heroes because Jesus is the builder of this spiritual house. Um, he is the creator, not the created. Um, he's a son, not just a, a mere servant. And so you can begin to see how the author is uh, is sort of making his case um, for how the, the followers really can keep going amidst their difficulties um, and their doubts. And so we're going to jump right in this morning. So if you have a Bible with you or an app on your phone, then do turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Um, we're going to um, look at verse 7 through to 19. I'll just start in um, the latter half of 6 for a bit of context. It'll be on the screen if, uh, if you don't have a Bible in front of you. It says, And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Why don't we pray together? God, as we see in these verses, 
references, well, warnings to us to not harden our hearts. We want to say this morning that we don't at all want to be found setting ourselves against your purposes in any area of our lives. We say we give ourselves over to you this morning and we know that um, as we do, you gladly um, soften us to your will. You renew our minds, you transform us to know your good and pleasing and perfect will. And so we say as we encounter you in and through your word this morning, change us, God, sanctify us, make us more like Jesus, we pray in your precious name. Amen. Well, I am an Englishman. You may have noticed, I was born in Stoke-on-Trent, which on Monday of this week was the second most congested city in the whole world. Anyone know where the first was? Nottingham. Nottingham. Yeah, we all loved that, didn't we? Um, you know, with the weather and the bridges and the snow and all of this stuff. But one of the things that I, I love about being an Englishman is that in a church like this, we've got people from all sorts of different nations, I love it. I hear lots of comments about how ridiculous some of the things that we English people do are. And I, so there are a number of things that I've become to, uh, come to be aware of, kind of cultural little quirks that we have. Maybe it might be our archaic parliamentary language. The right honorable gentleman for Bassett Law really must take account of this most serious matter in which I've expressed my mild displeasure. Or perhaps it's the constant chat about the weather. I mean, how many people here who are English have not had a conversation today about the weather? What with, you know, the leak and the... We've got about, I can see about four hands around the room. We're always chatting about it, aren't we? Perhaps it's the English theory of communication that any language barrier can be overcome by speaking louder and more slowly at the person with whom you are trying to communicate. But my favorite one of them all is the English inability to deal with any kind of invasion to our personal space. We've all seen it. You know, someone stands a little bit too close to you in conversation to your face, and so you take a step back. And so they take a step forward. And so you take a step back, and they take a step forward. And it looks like some kind of fencing match where they are very much on the attack. But because we're so awkward about this personal space invasion, it means that an, one of the, an Englishman's worst nightmares is where there are three people in the back of a car on a long journey, and you are the one sat in the middle. Okay? Now, in other countries, this doesn't seem to be as much of a problem. When we hear from Ben and Becker in Malawi and the minibuses that travel there, it's about cramming people in, kind of shoveling people into some confined space. You've got heads in armpits, and it's all fine. But in England, oh no. Because when you are in the middle of three people in the back of a car, you have to sit down, and the first thing that you have to navigate is how it is that you're going to put your belt on without thrusting your bottom into the person next to you or coming into contact with theirs. And so as you, as you kind of try and, and, and work that out, you settle back in to your seat and have this initial very strange feeling my hips are now touching two people that I do not know at all. And I have a decision to make. Are we going to remain at hip-to-hip -hip contact? Or am I going to spread my legs out and go full leg-to-leg -leg contact with you, even though I've just met you? And because it's all really... Matt's nodding. Because it's all really awkward, what do we try and do in that moment? We try and make ourselves thinner. 
Like we clench, we take a breath in, and we hope that for two hours of a journey, we can sit there with minimal contact. It's ridiculous. And yet then when the end of the day comes, oh, there's a whole nother level, because everybody is tired by this point. And if everybody is tired in the back of a car, well, falling asleep on somebody that you have only just become acquainted with opens up a whole nother level. Because maybe you risk snoring in their face. Maybe you risk the open-mouthed Instagram photo. Or maybe worst of all, you find yourself asleep on the shoulder, or worse still, the neck of your newly acquainted neighbor. And so we try and tell ourselves in this situation, keep your head still. Even if you get tired, keep your head still. And yet as the sleepiness comes, when your head begins to drift off to one side, at best you wake up very close to your mystery passenger. But at worst, fully resting on their shoulder, drool coming out of your mouth, and now you are very much acquainted. You know, it's funny when as passengers you fall asleep in the back of the car, but not so when the driver does. 2016 AA survey found that one in eight drivers had fallen asleep uh, at the wheel at some point, possibly more due to underreporting. And that actually, this had caused over 500 serious or fatal accidents. And yet, sadly, spiritually, we've all seen people who have fallen asleep at the wheel. People who started their journey of faith so well and yet, yet then seem to drift into disaster. It never happens suddenly, does it? It's the same with driving. Nobody gets into a car thinking, I'm going to drive this car and fall asleep on the journey of which I am driving. It happens incrementally, step by step. And that's the reality that, that we have to recognize that some people that we know or maybe even listening to this message today will feel like drifting off spiritually. Maybe it's because of the heavy eyes of hurt. Perhaps it's the weariness of confusion, the yawns of disappointment, or the drowsiness of doubt. You know, these things are questions that we all experience at some point in our walk, in our life. But if they're left unchecked or undealt with, that's when we can begin to drift into spiritual sleepiness. And so that's, I want to talk right into this this morning, it's begun to come through in our, our worship already, actually, about keeping going in faith when you're struggling. And what we see here in, in Hebrews is what gets called the second warning passage, or as Rick reminded us a, a few weeks ago, the second kind of wake-up passage. And it's here where one of the commentators, William, William Lane, says that the author moves from exposition to exhortation. That is, he moves from beginning to build a case and make points about Jesus Christ to exhorting the people, here pleading with his hearers not to give up on Jesus because he really is worth the struggle. And the first thing that he says is don't give up. God, don't give up. It says in, in verse seven, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts 
He's talking about the, the here and now. As the Holy Spirit says, it's present tense. He's speaking now. You can still hear his voice. He's still calling you. And in the drifting and the difficulties, you can still do something about this. You're not asleep. You still have a decision to make. But he says this today is temporary. That's what it says in, in verse 13. It says that an, an end is coming. And that actually is, is both an encouragement and a warning. It's an encouragement because research shows that when we live with, when we, when we live with knowing that the end is in sight, we, we can live for it, we can live in light of it, we can cope with more if we know that the end of something is soon coming. And that's actually biblical hope as well, isn't it? As Romans 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So it's an encouragement, but it's also a challenge. Because this today, one day, will be no more. One day we, we will be asleep. One day the moment will have passed us by. And in this interim stage in which we find ourselves between our redemption and our rest, between the promise and the fulfillment, between the now and the not yet, the author here is pleading with us not to give up. And he does so using a, a quote from, from the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, a collection of, of poems and songs celebrating who God is and dealing with the realities of life. And he quotes here Psalm 95. That's the big long quote that you saw took up about half of the passage. And this Psalm 95 would have been very, very familiar to the original hearers uh, of this message. Because in their Jewish context, what they would have known is that when the Sabbath day of rest came, they would all go off to the synagogue and they would sit down in the synagogue and Psalm 95 would be read out, and they would begin to hear, here's Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And it starts with that, that exhortation, praising God. But it moves on to say, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. And what, it's meant, what it would have done is it would have reminded the hearers of two Old Testament stories right from the very beginning of the Old Testament. So firstly, from the second book, Exodus, in chapter 17, there's a time where the people have come out of their slavery in Egypt. They're in the wilderness, and they reach a point where there doesn't seem to be any water for them to drink. And they freak out and they say, God, you're not providing for us. And it's highly ironic, of course, because they've just been delivered from slavery through the parting of the Red Sea. The very pillar of cloud of God's presence, cloud by day, fire by night, is literally there in front of them. And he's just sent manna, bread from heaven, which they've gone to get, come back. Oh, there's no water. God, you're not providing for us. It's deeply ironic. The story might be known as you're not providing, but it's a very ironic title. And when the hearers heard this Psalm 95 quote, they would think of that story. But they would also think of another story from the book of Numbers in, in chapter 14, where the people of God are still in, in the wilderness, and they're not yet in the land that God has promised to them. And so they send these spies into the land 
to try and work out how is it that we're going to get into this promised land that God's given to us. And the spies come back with a report and they say, oh, the land is so good. But the cities are fortified and the people are huge. And I'm not sure we can make it. And the people get discouraged and they say, well, Moses, uh, we'll, we'll do away with you. Let's pick a new leader and let's go back to Egypt. And God's absolutely fuming with their attitude, their lack of trust in him. And what he ends up saying is that none of you will end up seeing this promised land that I have promised to you except Caleb and Joshua who will remain remain faithful. He said there'll be a whole generation that has to pass 40 years of waiting until a new generation emerges. And these stories are in there because they're, they're meant to be a reminder just how easy it is for people to begin to doubt God to rebel against him, and when they do so, just how severe the consequences are. And church data would show that there are three main areas of vulnerability. The first one would be the first year of somebody becoming a Christian, very vulnerable time. The second one would be when hardship comes to a person, facing really difficult life circumstances. And the third one would be when major life change happens. You go off to uni, the kids leave for uni, retirement, whatever it might be. But what the author is saying here in verse eight is don't be like these guys. Take their example and do differently. Don't give up. Keep going because the end is coming. That encouragement and that challenge that we referred to earlier. We're meant to know that there is biblical precedent for people who seemingly started well and yet never finished. Part of the preparation for this message, I began to think about and pray through the the people in my life who I had worshipped with and taken communion with and who made uh, big life decisions for God with. And yet last I heard... They're nowhere with Jesus. He's given up. And there's about 25 people on that list. Like just in my life. And I began to pray for them and it felt like some of the heaviest prayers that I'd prayed in a long time. 25 people. Some of them got discouraged. Some of them got disillusioned. Some of them got disappointment, disappointed. But 25 people, he's meant to be a warning to us. And that's what this passage is saying. He's saying, look at all these people that started so well and yet never made it. He's meant to show us that there are many temptations available in this world. Many voices seeking to lay claim to our lives and our attention. Many lies that the enemy can sow regarding hardship. Do you know when we're at our most vulnerable is when we're least deliberate about continuing. And we just let it happen. And this passage isn't directly trying to answer the question of can I lose my salvation? That gets gets answered in in chapter six. Rick's picked that one for himself. He planned the series. He's given himself the hardest one. But he's a wonderful man, so it's gonna be good. But just a spoiler alert of what we'll be saying No, no, 
If you put your trust in Jesus, then you can know from what scripture says that it is God who has brought you into this. It is God who promises to keep you going. And yet it is true what the commentator F.F. Bruce says, which is that the truest evidence of genuineness of faith is perseverance to the end. And so for those who are struggling, some will get in, as the Bible says, as through fire. They'll scrape in, they'll just get in and yet missed out on so much. Some will actually show that their faith was not genuine in the first place. Some will be as, as the prodigal son who will return one day to, to live again with Jesus wholeheartedly for him. But what the author is simply trying to highlight here is that as for this generation, they escaped Egypt and never made it to the promised land. They saw deliverance, but they never saw the promise realized. They experienced redemption, but they never experienced rest. And because in Jesus we are offered eternal rest, which the passage refers to a couple of times, a little bit more in the next chapter, chapter four, that Ruth will pick up at the 9 a.m. meeting next week. The author is pleading with his hearers, don't give up, don't give up. The, the stakes are too high. And so he gives some, some practical advice. So this is the, the second point, is his practical advice, which is, to cling on to community. Have a look at verse 12 and 13. Here's what it says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Can you see there, it's, it's an active attitude. It's not a passive attitude. It's, it's saying you know, we're, we're meant to watch these doubts and these distrusts, these times when we think God should have acted differently by taking care to process them with one another. Yeah, these verses are, are a challenge to us because we can all spot times in our lives where our hearts have been unbelieving. The passage talks about hardening hearts. I, I can recognize times in my life where I was not as open to what God wanted to do as I would like to be. Times I didn't want to serve as I know is true and right and proper. Times I just wasn't open to his prompting as I would desire. The times where I just hardened my heart to things and God had to break in and by his grace churn that ground up for him to, to, to speak and move in me again. But are you ready for a point that is going to blow your mind? Verse 13 follows verse 12. You won't find that in any commentary. But it's the solution. Verse 13 is the solution. It says, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. You know, we're meant to encourage one another. We're meant to live these things together. We're meant to help one another and stay accountable to one another and open to one another so that we don't succumb to these early signs of spiritual sleepiness. You know, you don't need to face your struggles alone. And in fact, when you do, you just make yourself vulnerable. 
And that would be my experience pastorally, that often when people struggle, they isolate themselves. Because the feeling is, oh, I'm just not on the same wavelength as these people. I, I don't have the spiritual fervor that they have. I don't belong here. And yet, it is one of the enemy's classic tactics who is labeled the father of lies in scripture to try to make us feel things that we know are not true. In verse 13 here, it talks about the sin of an unbelieving heart. In the context, it's talking about not trusting God as we ought. But it says it's so deceitful. It says that that you can feel something and yet know that there is a greater truth that overrides it all. Maybe I am a mistake. Maybe I am worthless. Perhaps God doesn't care for me. I feel like church isn't for me right now. People can feel these things. And in a society that says you are what you feel, You just go with what you feel is right. These verses paint a different view. They say that your status, that your worth, that your identity is not solely in what you feel, but in what your heavenly father says about you. It's important to listen to our feelings. Don't hear what I'm not saying. You can go too far the other way. We don't want to crush them. But our feelings are but a dial on our dashboard. They are not the car itself. And sometimes we need to do some declaring of truth over ourselves. Because how many here know that the battle within is often won when it's brought out into the open? When you hear yourself declare the truth of the gospel, when you're vulnerable with one another and encourage one another and receive encouragement from one another, from those fighting alongside you. You know, that's why we can't be passive. Because this is spiritual warfare. So I want to ask, who are those one another's for you? Who are those two or three people that really know what your life is like? Beyond you and beyond your spouse as well, if you have one. Who are they? People you can be totally and brutally honest with. Because we have to be active in seeking them out, not passive. Relationship doesn't just happen. We have to be more open, not less. More integrated, not more isolated. And maybe you'll find those people in your home group, or in your prayer triplet, or in your discipleship group. Maybe for some of us today, the next step is saying, I am going to go and join a home group. Or ask someone that I respect to pray for me or to hang out or go for coffee. But folks, if we're to be a community that thrives, that reaches this city that we love so dearly with the gospel, we will do so as a family. A family that cheers one another on, a family that encourages one another, a family that's there for one another, not just to feel good, but for the very sake of keeping going on this great mission that God has given us. Because the foundation of all of this, our hope when we're struggling, is always Jesus. He really is better 
It says in verse 14, we have come to share in Christ. And if Jesus is better than angels and Moses and all our life heroes and well, anything that we can think of really, then he really is worth persevering with because he provides a better hope than all of the ultimately empty claims that are heard in this world. And if the author really is using the example of Israel, the people of God, and they're giving up, but then saying Jesus is more important than them, then so also must the rejection of him be more important and of greater consequence. You know, this is tough stuff, isn't it? It's not, it's not the lightest message ever today, but this, this is the word of God that changes us. And do you know the beauty of the word of God is that right in the midst of this stark warning, even there, our hope is found. Because in verse eight, it, in fact, if we can just stick verse eight on the screen, Deji, thanks. It says, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Do you remember it's quoting that Psalm 95 which in turn is reminding of those two stories that you're not providing and we can't go into the land. Well, Psalm 95 uses the word rebellion there, except it calls it Meribah. And it uses the word testing, just like our text does today, and it calls it Massa. That's straight from this Exodus 17 story. They were place names that were given because of the people's groaning and complaining against God. And so what happens is that Moses is told to go to a rock in that story. And you, you can think rock, right, okay, well, we, we hear of God as the rock of our salvation. That's Psalm 95 too. And you can be tempted to think, well, where is my rock when my life is rocky? And yet so many people miss the point of this Exodus 17 story. That Moses didn't just go to the rock just to stand on it. But the rock was struck and water flowed out from it. The people's thirst was quenched and they received life. And folks, when we're struggling or not sure or tempted to give up or live for something else, the very best thing that we can do is go back to the one who was struck on our behalf to give us life. He never promised life without trials, actually. Quite the opposite. But he did promise that he would be with us in our trials. That he would create a way for us to be empowered to face them through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. And that in so doing, we would be building a heavenly reward for ourselves. That when we catch a glimpse of that, it puts everything else of this present day into its momentary temporal perspective he says keep going because if you continue in him you will outlive your trials you will see victory come in your life you will stay awake to the end of your journey and you will hear those wonderful words from Jesus of well done good and faithful servants because the author lastly finishes by reminding us of everything that he has just said. He repeats it. It says again, verse 15, as it said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then all those questions about the people of God. 
Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Wasn't it all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? He's saying, look at their story. I'm saying this again for for emphasis. Look at their story. Remember what happened to them. And don't give up because Jesus is so much greater. He really is better than everything because he really is greater than everything. Every struggle, every doubt, every mistake, every fear, every disappointment, every experience. And if you keep going in him, clinging to him through the community of his people, then he will see you safely home. Shall we stand together? Let's have the bands. Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for your revelation of yourself to us both in your word and in your life, death, and resurrection, coming so that we might be changed, rescued from the pit of our sin, and brought into wonderful new life. And you also say that through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. And so my prayer today, Lord, is that you would strengthen us for the fight, strengthen us to keep going, ward off the attacks of the enemy from us as we, as we fight them with the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, which is your words and its wonderful, glorious, life-transforming truth. In this battle that we all face, God, strengthen us for the fight because we want to see your name made famous in this city and beyond. In your precious name, amen.